especially if you're on the live stream, it's great to see everyone's smiling face. My name is Mark. Uh, this, this last week I had an hour or so on a train, so I was reading this book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't, uh, by Stephen McAlpine. Uh, he's, I think he lives over in Perth. Uh, a very fascinating book. I'm, I'm only halfway through it, but I got halfway through it in an hour. So, uh, a very fascinating book. And Stephen basically says, uh, looks at the world around us and concludes, uh, which is obvious, I think, that the world is against us. The world rejects Christianity. It, it doesn't like the truth that we proclaim. And he goes through and shows various ways that that's true. Uh, he uh, says that we should expect that. We should be expect to be persecuted as Christians. And I do think we see that all the time. This week, uh, you might have seen in the papers how the trans, uh, the trans athletes are being sidelined out of many sports uh, because of issues of fairness. Uh, there's this debate whether fairness and gender, how do you not discriminate and be fair? That, that's, that discussion is happening in the world around us. And uh, it's, it's interesting, the, the nature of truth in that discussion. The transgender community says it is not scientific to discriminate against trans athletes. And I'm thinking scientific, uh, one side's uh, declaring biology and other side is declaring gender issues. It's a very confusing debate. Uh, But in the middle of it, Christianity is caught because we are being called to compromise on our truth, what we believe about God, the way he's created us, male and female, as we've been seeing in our series. Uh, A a very fascinating book uh, and he um, gets into that issue of identity. That's why my ears were attuned to all the debates going this week. Uh, but I do, every day we are called to compromise our, our, the truth of the gospel by the world around us. Uh, and as I was reading Song of Songs, it's interesting that that question actually comes up in our, in our passage. Um, the young women who were, who were speaking with the woman asked, what makes the one you love better than another most beautiful of women. What makes the one you love better than another? What makes our God and the truth that we believe about him better than the the message of the world around us? Should we compromise on our truth? Well, we're going to listen to God's word this morning and consider... Uh, what he has to say about relationships, about men and women. There are actually a lot of questions in this passage. I'm sure Adrian will get to all those. Uh, there will be an opportunity for a Q&A later on. Uh, so if you have questions about Song of Songs or anything else, then we'll have a Q&A session a bit later on. Uh, but the question I wanted to think about, can, should we compromise on the truth about God? What makes God better than anything else in this creation, that this creation, the media, politics, whatever has to offer. Uh, I tr- let me pray as we begin. 
Uh, We are going to begin with our Bible reading and sermon early and then we'll have community news a bit later. But let me pray that God will speak to us today, that we might listen and understand his word to us. Our great God and Father, we thank you that we can gather. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ, that we know you completely. We know your love for us in Jesus. We ask, Father, this morning as we consider your word, we might be reminded again how uh, your love for us and our devotion to you is what must drive us in this world. Help us to have ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Help us to listen and know the truth. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I trust as you came up, uh, came in this morning, you received a handout uh, that will help you follow along. This, there's a sermon outline inside. Uh, Pam is going to come up and read the passage to us this morning. As Mark said, my name is Pam. It's my privilege to read the Bible this morning. Uh, It's Song of Songs, um, chapter 7, beginning at verse 10. And it's on page 598, uh, if you've got a church Bible. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my love's, and his desire is for me. Come, my love. Let's go to the field. Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine has budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my caresses. The mandrakes give off a fragrance and at our doors is every delicacy, both new and old. I have treasured them up for you, my love. If only I could treat you like my brother, one who nursed at my mother's breasts, I would find you in public and kiss you, and no one would scorn me. I would lead you, I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranate. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on the one she loves? I awakened you under the apricot tree. There your mother conceived you. There she conceived and gave you birth. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. Our sister is young. 
She has no breasts. What will we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build a silver barricade on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with cedar planks. I am a wall and my breasts like towers. So to him, I have become like one who finds peace. Solomon owned a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He leased the vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for his fruit 1,000 pieces of silver. I have my own vineyard. The 1,000 are for you, Solomon, but 200 are for those who take care of its fruits. You who dwell in the gardens, Companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear you. Run away with me, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Thanks, Pam. Hi there, everyone. My name is Adrian, and it's great to see you here today. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open. We're going to try and cover... Chapters 5 to 8, we've got a whole bunch of uh, Song of Songs to get through today as we finish off the series. Uh, There's a lot in it, Uh, and then uh, after the talk there'll be a song and then question time. So there's an opportunity to ask any questions that you might have. Uh, So why don't we pray now and ask God to be with us as we come to listen to him speak to us in his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given us and the privilege it is to be together as your people Thank you for uniting us together in Christ uh, with a deep and passionate love demonstrated perfectly on the cross. Help us to understand what you are saying to us and the gifts that you've given us in marriage and love and in intimacy. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to trust you and to live out the life uh, that you uh, have called us to. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our church motto here is growing people passionate for Christ. Uh, It's who we want to be, it is our prayer, it is what we're on about. We want to be growing people who don't just think Jesus is a historical figure, a good teacher, just someone to respect, someone to think about maybe twice a year, Christmas and Easter. No, a Christian is someone who worships Jesus, who is passionate for Christ, fired up, devoted, committed, puts Jesus first in everything in their life. And we deliberately use the word passionate to describe our commitment and our devotion to the Lord Jesus because that's the level of commitment and devotion he has for us. Christ is passionate for his people. In fact, maybe you've heard the term the passion of Christ referring to his commitment, his sacrifice, his suffering on the cross. Jesus has come into our world and has shown at every point that God is not indifferent to us. God isn't some unfeeling, far-off force. He isn't blasé about human suffering and death. God's passionately concerned for his people and for his creation. So much so that he became one of us. He took on flesh. He lowered himself from the throne of heaven to be born as a baby. And to grow up as a man, God knows exactly what it's like to be human. He knows exactly what it's like to suffer hardship in this life. And then even more, he gave himself 
completely, 100%, poured himself out on the cross entirely for the task of loving us and rescuing us. That's commitment. That's devotion. He didn't hold anything back in his love for us. He went to the cross in our place so that we can have a new and right relationship with God. He has shown great passion for us. And so this is ultimately where we will find real joy, real satisfaction and real happiness. You see, God has actually made us to experience joy and happiness and love and excitement and the fullness of life. And so whether it's the simple, quiet joys of being with friends, having good conversation, great food, or it's those jaw-dropping moments at the top of a mountain, just getting a glimpse of the awesomeness of creation, God has given us these experiences. Or maybe it's the breathtaking moment when your baby is born. These are gifts from God. God has even made food delicious and enjoyable. Have you thought about this? That God could have made it that we eat grass or sticks or that we're solar-powered, that we get our energy from all sorts of places. Instead, he made us to need three meals a day, or if you're my teenage sons, seven meals a day. He made a variety of foods with all sorts of combinations that together make spectacular flavors to enjoy, like if you're my teenage sons, milk and wheat bix but, but that's his gift to us. That's all they ever eat. But all these other options, God has given us all these amazing things for us to enjoy. He's given us beaches and the snow, forests and sunsets and bacon. It's a world full of things that are fun. But what we've been seeing in this part of the Bible that we're studying at the moment is that in particular, it's relationships that bring about the deepest passions and joys and heartfelt experiences. This book is filled with passion and desire and the delight between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And we're going to see today that relationships are more important than possessions, than money, than career, than success. And it's because this is what we've been made for. We've been created to be like our creator God. He's the God of relationship. He's the God of love. And since relationships are the source of deepest joy, then relationship with God is the ultimate, the greatest, the deepest, most soul-satisfying joy you can ever have. So we are passionate for Christ because he is passionate for us. And what we've been seeing over the last few weeks in Song of Songs, and you can catch up with those talks online if you've missed any of the last few weeks, they're on our website, you can go there. But what we've been seeing is that when we understand everything in the context of relationship with God, then things like marriage and love and singleness and even sex start to make much more sense as gifts from God that he designed for us to enjoy and be happy about. And because this is important, as we enjoy the things in this life that God has made, we enjoy them out of thankfulness to Him. It's part of our enjoyment of Him. The problem is when the good things that God has given us become more important to us than the God who gave them. That's a problem. And it's just like a parent who gives their child a very exciting gift. Maybe it's an iPad or a Nintendo Switch or whatever the thing is. 
as a gift for them to enjoy because they love them and they want them to have fun. But watching their child excitingly discover new features is great and enjoying it is a pleasure for the parent, but then it becomes they spend all day, all night, staring at this thing, ignoring their parents, ignoring their brothers and sisters, ignoring their friends, not listening, not caring, not participating. That's painful, isn't it? It's the same in a marriage or in a friendship. It is a problem when you get the impression that the other person likes what you do for them or likes what you give them or provide for them more than they like you. Have you ever had that feeling, that impression, that you're just like a means to an end for them? Well, it's the same with God. But you see, real happiness and real life is experienced when we enjoy the good things God has given us out of thankfulness and as a way of expressing that we enjoy God. So as we finish off our series in Song of Songs, a big part of what we will see is that our enjoyment of God's gifts of love and marriage and intimacy is connected to our enjoyment of God who created these things, who created us, gave us these good gifts. Our expression and experience of love is connected to our love for God. Now, the repeated phrase that we've noted a few times, that one of the key ideas all the way through Song of Songs, it's like a, a thread running through the whole song, really holds it all together, is do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. It's repeated again and again all the way through this book. So that even as this song celebrates love, enjoys love, delights in the intensity of love, it also includes a helpful call to understand just how powerful love is and to know, to discern the right time to stir up love, to awaken love and desire, but also to know when it isn't the time. Because love is powerful. Then there is a time we need to be careful. There are times when we might feel like holding back, but we should lean into it and love with everything that we've got. Just like there are times when our instinct says, ooh, loving would be fun, but we should actually hold back. And that's the point of the first section that we're going to be looking at today in chapter 5 from verse 2. It's the idea of getting the timing right. We see that in chapter 5, that even in this relationship of deep love and delight, there are still elements of disappointment and frustration. In verse 2, the woman sounds like she is dreaming. It says there she is asleep, but her heart is awake. Um, and remember in the Bible that the heart is actually the seat of decisions and thoughts, not so much what we think of it as a place of just pure emotion. It's actually where you think and decide. And So she seems to be having this dream, a bit like the experience she had back in chapter 2, remember, when she searched for her man but couldn't find him anywhere. So have a look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. I was sleeping, but my heart was awake. A sound, my love was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my hair with droplets of the night. I've taken off my clothing. How can I put it back on? I've washed my feet. How can I get them dirty? You see, her husband is outside in the dark, in the rain, knocking on the door. He wants to be with her, with the one he loves. But she's not sure it's worth the effort of getting out of bed, of finding her slippers, putting on her dressing gown. 
I'm all warm and toasty in bed, she says. My feet are all clean. They'll get dirty if I come and open the door. And at which point he'd be like, well, okay, that's fine. I'll stay outside here in the rain in the dark. That's okay. You wouldn't want your feet to get dirty. But, but he loves her and he keeps calling to her. And eventually it says in verse 4, as he reaches for her, her feelings are stirred up. But then look what happens in verse 5. I rose to open for my love. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh like a perfume on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my love, but my love had turned and gone away. My heart sank because he had left. I sought him but did not find him. I called him but he did not answer. See, he wanted her, but she wasn't that interested. Then she wanted him, but he wasn't there anymore. And you know what? When it comes to love, sometimes it's really hard to get the timing right. See, the man was knocking on her door and wanted to see her, but she was comfortably doing her thing. Then when she did want to see him, he's gone and wandered off somewhere and doing something else. It's so true of love, isn't it? I mean, it's true of dating and courtship. You like someone, but they're not interested in you. And then they turn around and start liking you, but you've moved on. But it's also true in marriage that there are times when one of you reaches out and wants to talk, wants to spend time, needs the other, but the other is too tired or too busy or doesn't notice or isn't there. And then it flips and then they want to talk and they want to sort things out and they want to hang out and you just can't get the timing right. Because in a relationship of love, it's actually kind of like a dance. A marriage is like a dance where a man and a woman are learning more and more to move in sync and to get the timing right of when they need each other and when they can be there for each other. They learn how each other thinks and feels and moves and responds. And just like in a dance, you both need to be moving to the same rhythm and have the same purpose. But it's interesting, the dance only works if you're actually moving slightly differently. We were at a wedding last night for a couple from Night Church. It was a whole lot of fun to be there. And a big part of a wedding celebration is their first dance. And they'd obviously put a lot of time practicing their first dance together. And it's interesting, and in a dance, in order for them together to move in the same direction, because they're facing each other, then one is moving to their right and the other's moving to their left. They're both moving in the same direction, but what they're doing is different. One's going forwards, one going backwards. And the timing of it really matters. That as you move, you move together. You don't tread on each other's toes. And here's the thing about marriage and love, is it takes time to be able to grow better and better at understanding the other and how they think. When do they want to talk? When do they just need to be on their own? When do you need to drop everything and be there for them? And when do you not need to do that? It's part of the getting the timing right. And in her dream, she searches for him in the middle of the night. And you know what? It's a failure. In fact, it's a disaster and it turns into a nightmare. And so in verse 8, she calls out to her friends, the young women of Jerusalem, help me find my love. But the response she gets in chapter 5 verse 9 is, well, is he worth it? Is he worth the effort? Is he worth the heartache and the trouble and the inconvenience of getting the timing right and working out how to be there for each other when you don't really feel like it? Is he worth the inconvenience of needing you while you don't have energy or you're doing something else? 
all the compromises and adjustments that are necessary in relationship. Listen to what they say, verse 9. What makes the one you love better than another, most beautiful of women? What makes him better than another that you would give us this charge? Why would we bother? Go searching for him. What makes him so great? Well, then we come now to the section where both the woman and the man sing and celebrate each other. They delight in each other. They sing about how much they love each other, which is all to say that their love is worth the effort. She describes him at the end of chapter 5 in very poetic language, but every detail of it drips with her delight in him and desire for him. So chapter 5, verse 10, My love is fit and strong, notable among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside flowing streams washed in milk and set like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, mounds of perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with flowing myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is an ivory panel covered with lapis lazuli. His legs are alabaster pillars set on pedestals of pure gold. His presence is like Lebanon, as majestic as the cedars. His mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. This is my love and this is my friend, young women of Jerusalem. And she thinks he is very good looking. From his wavy black hair to his arms and his chest and his legs, she is a fan. She is very attracted to him. She uses all these precious jewels and metals to describe him of how precious he is. And again, it's all part of how God has made us. The joyful experiences that God gives us of each other in relationship and each other's bodies. And then, in turn, he gets to sing about her and how much he loves her, as he's done a number of times in this book. He thinks she's gorgeous and lovely and beautiful. Again, with interesting kind of metaphors and similes and stuff like that. But it occurred to me in the last week or so that one of the most beautiful characters of fiction for us is Snow White. And what makes her beautiful? Well, her skin is white as snow, her lips are red as blood, and her hair is black as raven. And when we hear that, we think, wow, snow, blood, and a black bird. Initially, you think, well, that's weird. But actually, we don't, do we? We think, yeah, she's beautiful. She has fair skin and red lips and dark hair. We, we understand the analogies of the, 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 the animal and the bird and the, that kind of stuff. It's like that with Song of Songs. We need to look past the slight randomness initially, but to, to remember that's kind of how we talk poetically. Listen to how he describes her in chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, princess. The curves of your thighs are like jewellery, the handiwork of a master. Your navel is a rounded bowl, a very small bowl, I think he means. Um, uh, it's, uh, it never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes are like pools in Heshbon by Bath Rabim's gate. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, the hair of your head like purple cloth. A king could be held captive in your tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasant. My love with such delights... Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb that palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes, the fragrance of your breath like apricots. 
your mouth is like fine wine. Now, you might not know heaps about poetry, but um, you get the idea, don't you? I mean, this song is getting pretty intimate, a little bit saucy, because that's the joy and intimacy that God has created us for in marriage. And they both love it. They enjoy it. And they don't feel any shame about this union and intimacy and oneness. But what's interesting is in the midst of these songs, we actually catch a glimpse just below the surface of what I think is King Solomon's humble admission. Now, King Solomon wrote this song. The king has written a song about a young man and a young woman in love. But listen to what he says back in chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, in between these two songs. The man is singing this one. He says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and young women without number, but my dove, my virtuous one, is unique. The favourite of her mother, perfect to the one who gave her birth, Women see her and declare her fortunate. Queens and concubines also sing her praises. Who is this who shines like the dawn, as beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awe-inspiring as an army with banners? Now, that's really interesting because of all the queens, 60 queens, of all the concubines, 80 concubines, of all the young women, she is unique. She is the only one. Marriage is about exclusivity. She is the only one, just like this is the only cat who interrupts church all the flipping time. My wife has, in her contacts in her phone, chased... Get out of here. Yeah, my wife has a contact, chase the cat, so she can text, come and get your cat. So, um, comes over all the time. Anyway, we won't see Mark for a few hours now. Um, okay, so we're, we're back to chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. And in this bit, she is unique. She is the only one. Marriage is about exclusivity. And we live in a world where sometimes we think if something is good and makes me happy, then I would be even happier if I had hundreds of them. Money is good, but I'd be happier if I had lots more. Houses are good. Cars are good. Phones are good. Shoes are good. All these things but I need more and more and more. And you know what? We're never satisfied, are we? And we never will be satisfied because we're trying to find satisfaction in things that can only be found in God. We're trying to find our purpose and our meaning, our significance in things and experiences that can only be found in God. Solomon is a real historical figure and what we know about him is that he ruled over one of the most powerful kingdoms and he was one of the richest kings of all time. He had so much gold. Every single cup he owned was gold. He had so much gold that the city of Jerusalem, all the people had so much gold and silver that there was as much as there was rocks on the ground, it says. He was one of the richest kings of all time. All the nations around bowed down to him. He's one of the wisest men ever. And you know what? He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Of course, a wife is excellent. What about 700 wives? And for some reason, 300 girlfriends. In one sense, Solomon had everything. But he writes this song, his greatest song, his song of songs. 
I think to say that what this ordinary girl and this ordinary boy have in their sweet love, in their loyalty, their passion, their exclusivity is worth more than everything he himself has. 60 wives, 80 concubines, all the young women know she is unique, the only one. I think you get this idea again right at the end in chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11, just super quickly. Solomon owned a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He leased the vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for his fruit 1,000 pieces of silver. I have my own vineyard. The 1,000 are for you, Solomon. The 200 are for the, take, the ones who take care of the fruits. Solomon has riches. He's got, he's got spare vineyards. He's got people who pay him and take care of all his needs. But I have my vineyard. Solomon, you can have your thousand. I've got my one. I think this is quite a humble admission from Solomon to write a song pointing out what he is missing, even as the king who has everything. It's a little bit like Ecclesiastes. He writes Ecclesiastes and he says a pretty similar thing. I tried everything and it was meaningless. We need God. And so this exclusive relationship, sometimes ordinary relationship, sometimes disappointing relationship, but this deeply intense love that this young woman and young man share is better than all his riches. And that brings us then to the power of love. So we're going to skip to chapter 8, having a look at verse 6 and 7, where she says to the young man, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol, the grave. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. See, the woman expresses the strength of her love for this man by claiming a sort of ownership. You belong to me, she says, and I belong to you. So set me as the seal on your heart and on your arm. Seals were a sign of ownership and protection. You're mine, she is saying. I love you. I will look after you in the nicest possible way. There's this very close attachment and ownership and belonging. Because she goes on, Love is as strong as death and jealousy is as unrelenting as the grave. Now, we know love is powerful, don't we? But this is saying something. When death takes you, it takes you completely and you're gone. When love grabs hold of you, it doesn't let go. It consumes our thoughts. It fills our minds. It transforms our actions and attitudes. It takes over completely. Love is powerful i remember maybe 20 years ago hearing in the news reading it in the paper about a couple who were on their honeymoon up in queensland with snorkeling and a shark started circling they had to rush back to the boat swim back to the boat the husband is back to the boat in safety but he sees his wife of two days isn't going to make it so he dives in between her and the shark and she's able to make it out alive but he died that's powerful love, isn't it? Right there. That is a husband right there that he jumped in front of a shark for her. Married two days. I love you. I will die for you. Love is powerful. There are so many powerful acts of love. I think one of the most powerful 
is motherhood. The painful sacrifice and self-giving of having children, nurturing them, caring for them, raising them, being hurt and disappointed and let down by them, but being, them, being there for them relentlessly through thick and thin, challenging times, no matter what, as they grow older. That is powerful, enduring love. Because it turns out this love they share together in this song that we've been looking at is actually a partaking of a greater divine love. Did you see there in verse 6? Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame that can't be quenched. But when it says an almighty flame, it could be the flame of the almighty. Love is a flame, powerful, because it comes from God. Because of God's blazing, unquenchable, passionate love for his people. Love is powerful because love comes from God. He is the God of love. He created us for love and he loves us deeply. And so it goes on in verse 7. Love is more powerful than circumstances or ill fortune or the challenges of life. It's more powerful than money and riches. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. And you can't buy real love no matter how much riches you have. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. True love can't be purchased or bartered for. If you have to give someone your riches to get them to love you, guess what? They really love money. They don't love you. But love is freely given. Love is free, but love is never cheap. Love is free, but love is never cheap. Which is how I want to finish our time in Song of Songs, by reminding us of a love that's actually even stronger than death. So here we read that love is as strong as death. But no matter how much you love someone, or they love you, death comes to us all. But there is a love that is stronger than death. There is a love that's not just the kind of make-believe in the movies where it all kind of gets solved with a kiss at the end, but in real life, this is the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You know Christ's love is stronger than death because even though he died, he came back for us. He came back from the death in order to be with us. You know his love is stronger than death because he saves us from death and he promises us resurrection and eternal life with him. So let me finish then with these words describing God's love for us that are even stronger than death in Romans chapter 8. So I'm going to finish with these verses and then we're going to sing. Romans 8 verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing.